Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Wrestling, the first Stick to Wrestling of 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, my name is John McAdam, and this is the Stick to Wrestling podcast where we talk about classic pro wrestling for uh, usually 70s, 80s, and 90s, actually, usually 80s. And we've got an 80s podcast today. We are going to talk about the, we're going to take a deep dive into the World Wrestling Federation January 1984. Steve and I recorded this. We lived through January 1984. This was a month where radical changes occurred in the World Wrestling Federation, not just there, but really the entire wrestling world. And we lived through it. We lived through the old pre-Hogan, pre-Okerland, pre-Piper WWF, and we give you we give you our reaction to the new the new world order. What can I say? I hope you all find it really informative. Um, before I get going on that, join our Facebook group. It's a bunch of cool people talking about a bunch of cool different topics, mostly wrestling, but we talk about football, baseball, music, whatever else you got. Um, also, my Twitter account is back. If you, I, it, without getting into the weird details, uh, you can once again follow me. Uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling avatar, uh, the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Um, not to belabor this point, but Vince McMahon really had a, a successful business model coming into 1984, and he put a wrecking ball to it. He he reinvented the wheel and guess what about 15 years later he was a billionaire in his mid-50s now my mid-50s have come and gone and i am not a billionaire in part because i have not gotten enough donations from the stick to wrestling universe if you would like to donate to this free and ad-free podcast uh, just go to PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives at gmail.com. The big Michigan-Washington game is coming up on Monday. Buy me some Chick-fil-A. Go ahead, and that can be my, your thank you to me. And that's it. Let's get rolling on episode number 291 of Stitch Wrestling. We, now, episode two, I've been really looking forward to this project. I came up with it, I want to say, six, seven months ago, and we're finally rolling. I'm very excited. What we're going to do is talk about the earliest stages of 1984 in the WWF. Steve, you and I last week re- reviewed almost everything that went on beforehand, but there is one thing we forgot. One important thing. I think you're thinking about uh, one uh, former National Wrestling Alliance champion or one uh, then world champion, Harley Race. Indeed, Vince McMahon, and this has been confirmed in Harley Race's book, The Late Great Harley Race, that Vince McMahon tried to get him to skip Starcade 83 and show up with the WWF in the WWF with the NWA championship. And that would have been pretty outrageous. You, you know, I, I, looking back on it, I, I really, I guess I'm glad it didn't happen because I think. We'd be looking back on it now, much like the uh, invasion angle of uh, the early 2000s. I mean, yeah, we had seen Harley race at MSG against Backlund and one of the unification titles. And 
They had another one in Toronto. But seeing the the world champion, NWA champion, come in as a permanent member of the WWF along with the world title, I just think it was going to fall flat on its face, honestly. Not only that, but when the war first started, like, okay, a lot of the promoters were saying, from my understanding, was like Fritz von Erich and Bill Watts, they didn't think it was going to affect them. Uh, they thought Vince was going, just going to expand into certain territories. If the, the NWA, if Vince had done that, if he had stolen the NWA champion, I mean, the, the NWA promoters, I think, would have had to unite and be a, a strong united force and go directly to war with Vince McMahon. Well, I, I think, I mean, we, we saw them eventually do that. And I mean, they had Pro Wrestling USA with Vern involved, too. And that that was a flop, especially in New York. I mean, I don't see history really playing out any differently. But, um, you know, Harley, uh, I think Harley made the right decision. I think he knew it at the time just was not right. No, I agree with you. And at the end of the day, uh, beginning of 1986, Harley got a great run in the WWF anyway. That's right. Yeah, I know a lot of the hardcore fans uh, don't appreciate that he became the king of wrestling. But I think part of that gimmick they gave him was because he was so revered as as one of the kings of wrestling as a longtime champion. So it wasn't such a denigrating gimmick to give him since he had earned so much respect. I didn't like it. I thought it was clownish. I mean, it, it was just what the WWF did. I mean, Dory Funk Jr. became Haas Funk. Uh, I, I mean, I get it, but I, I didn't like it. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I guess I've always defended that the, the Dory thing, I guess when he was in high school or college, people actually called him Haas Funk then. So, and I don't know if Vince just lucked into that one, but uh, uh, I, I think if, if Harley had come in with the NWA belt, I mean, you already had a new champion and Hogan coming in the, like a month later or two months later. It just would have been a, just a, a mess, a potpourri of confusion. No, I, I can definitely see that. You've got the NWA champion and now you've got, you're transferring the belt from Backlund to the Sheik to Hogan. And while we're talking about Iron Sheik, we're going to start talking about January 1st, 1984. Iron Sheik is the f- brand spanking new WWF heavyweight champion. Um, December 31st, 1983 was a Saturday. That's the Saturday where most of us found out that the title had switched. It, it was a very exciting time. It was a very uh, shocking time after uh, six years of Bob uh, back on his, his champion. One one little interesting footnote I'll add about that time. I have a feeling that they were rewarding Blassie for all those years of a great service and all great interviews. Albano had Koloff win the championship in 71. The Wizard had Superstar in 1977 win the title. Now it was Blassie's turn, and it only lasted a few weeks, but Blassie got to be the manager of the world champion. I will be 100% honest. I think that was it was a happy coincidence, but it was just a coincidence. I mean, I'm pretty adamant that the, the only the only consideration that was given to the Iron Sheik winning the title is he was Backlund's next opponent at Madison Square Garden. No, no matter who that would have been, George Steele, Killer Khan, Bulldog Brower, it doesn't matter. That guy was getting the four-week run with the title. Well, well it, it, if that's the case, and I, I agree with you, it probably was the case. It, it, it worked out perfectly because 
it made Iron Sheik, it elevated him. It made him a lot more than he really was. And giving him the rub of being WWF champion really got him ready and primed for his next big thing, which we'll talk about eventually, his ultimate mm-hmm. feud with the Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, it absolutely elevated the Iron Sheik. He was, I don't want to say a mid-card guy in Georgia, but he was not a main eventer in Georgia. And had Hogan not signed with the WWF, Backlund would have beaten the Sheik on uh, on December 26th. There would not have been a rematch, and it would have been Paul Orndorff versus Bob Backlund on January 20th. Wow, that's, that's hard to believe. But uh, yeah, Sheik, uh, like you said, after years of being kind of a mid-level heel in the WWF, his prior uh, name was Hussein Arab about five years earlier. Uh-huh. Uh, great, great scientific uh, heel uh, with great suplexes and great moves. Uh, that that brief period of him as champion, uh, he really became put in the center of of everything. And you didn't really know what to make of it because he was so different than any other champion. He didn't have the uh, excitement of superstar Billy Graham. He didn't have uh, – uh, he was just completely different champion than anything we had been used to. And we really didn't know whether he was going to be the new long-term champ or just maybe a short-term champ. I'll, I'll tell you, coming into 1984, I was thoroughly confused because I, I had no idea what this guy's role was going to be. You know, it was such, a, such an odd championship, but you're right. He became a major part of WWF history by being in the right place at the right time. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and uh, you know, knowing what we know now and what was going to happen about three weeks with him against Hogan and MSG, I mean, what better opponent for Hogan to go against than the hated Iranian Iron Sheik? And, uh, and I can't think of a better opponent you could have imagined uh, to have Hogan kick off his uh, historic run as WWF champion than the Iron Sheik. No, it was, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, it was it was one of those things where he got the belt. But when he lost, when Iron Sheik lost the belt to Hogan, it didn't really diminish him. No, d- definitely not. And uh, I think the way that, that the rematches played out, if I remember correctly, it wasn't like they, you know, immediately went back to let's have uh, lots of rematches with Hogan against Sheik. It was much more like, Hogan got matches against people like Valentine and Orndorff, and it was more like six, seven months later, hey, let's, let's revisit, you know, Sheik against Hogan, and and by that time, um, you didn't know. I mean, could could Sheik, uh, you know, upset Hogan and win the title? It, it became a uh, another uh, high-profile match just because they kind of kept it on the back burner for a little while. Well, that that was the that was the New York version. I mean, she got rematches around the horn, mm-hmm. and I actually attended one of them, a, a Sheik Hogan match. We're going to be talking about that in a future episode. Um, but let's start with All American Wrestling, January first, nineteen eighty four. This is a Sunday. I spent the whole day driving home from Montreal, but well, anyway, All American Wrestling. And here's what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk about the TV shows. The results of the TV shows, the wrestlers involved in the TV shows, where we have the information, like all American wrestling, the results are kind of, you know, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not, but we have them for January 1st, 1984 kicks off with the Samoans, former WWF tag team champions in a competitive match against uh, multiple time 
tag team, WWF tag team champion, Tony Gurria and long-term favorite SD Jones. Yeah, that was a, was a good uh, matchup. Uh, you know, all American at that time, uh, it was still relatively new. And I think uh, Vince was probably still hosting at this time. And, um, we're going to see in this episode, uh, it deviates from what we became used to with All American, where All American ended up being more of a wrap-up show with just highlights from uh, All Star Wrestling and Championship Wrestling, and later uh, Challenge and Superstars. But here you're going to see uh, an influx of matches from other territories, which makes it interesting. Yeah, that's they started off with, um, as we mentioned last week, a tribute to Backlund, then a tribute to Snooker, then a tribute to Andre. And then it kind of became a focus of a little bit of what's going on with a bunch of different promotions demonstrated by the fact that they aired a match from championship wrestling from Florida, Mike Graham against Denny Brown. Yeah. Good, good scientific match there. And, uh, you know, at that time, uh, we were still a close relationship with, uh, Eddie Graham and Vince senior. And, um, you know, it was around that time, uh, that, uh, prior to the January MSG show, that uh, J.J. Dillon uh, told his boss, Eddie Graham, that he had a dream and he wanted to wrestle at MSG. And it was about this time that uh, uh, Eddie Graham made that phone call to Vince Sr. and got J.J. Uh, booked. And he would later have a match uh, for the Intercontinental title against Tito Santana at MSG. Uh, but it just shows you that even though we're on the, the verge of this or the verge of this explosion of, of the national expansion, uh, you're seeing the last vestiges of the old world that we knew it with the friendship and the handshake cooperation of the promoters. Now, the next match they air was it, it indicated now they had had they had been on USA Network for about three months. They air the Pat Patterson versus Tor Kamada match. I, I'm guessing this is this is this has got to be the Shea Stadium match. So they're showing old matches and. Already, the All-American Wrestling Show on USA Network is becoming a little bit of a throwaway show. Yeah, I I would agree with that, especially showing a match from four years ago. And and, and Patterson, uh, you know, all all respect to him, is a great Hall of Famer. By 84, by mid-84, as the year would go on, he became pretty much almost a... I uh, hate to use that term, jobber to the stars. Uh, uh-huh. Did a lot of uh, you know losses to big names coming in, and, uh, and and of course he'd be the referee for WrestleMania one in the main event. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was he was on his way out here. He was still being pushed a little bit strong in 1983. He had a a feud with Ivan Koloff when uh, Koloff just smacked him in the mouth on TV for no real reason. But yeah, Pat Patterson is definitely in the twilight of his career at this point. Yeah. He and he and Strongbow, I think were the two that, you know, they still had some marquee matches. I know Strongbow had a big match against Orndorff, uh, maybe a month or so later. And, and it was just kind of sad to see, you know, these guys who were once so important to the WWF, all of a sudden, um, just almost like overnight, became uh, mid-card to lower-card guys. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, I mean, for me to see Strongbow, it was, it was sad because he was physically shot and he was stale as all get out. And it was kind of a sad ending. Same day, we have a show at the Hartford Civic Center, uh, January 1st, 1984, headlined by Jimmy Snuka and Arnold Skoland defeating 
Don Morocco and Captain Lou Albano. Steve, the WWF spent a lot of time in 1982 and 1983 building up. Finally, we're going to get to see Buddy Rogers beat up Lou Albano, teach him a lesson. And by the time we got to that finish line, Buddy Rogers was gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I think um I think it just comes down to just the bad luck that he he fell in the shower at MSG. He slipped and fell. I don't think it was anything beyond that that he got hurt and uh had to leave the promotion. Uh I I know that there wasn't really any heart, bad feelings or anything because I know later in the year he showed up on the TNT show yeah. with Vince and his son that came on there too. I think David Rogers, I think. But uh, yeah, it, it it was a bit a bit of a letdown. And Buddy Rogers uh, was uh, probably a lot better as a as a worker uh, as far as the older guy working with his uh, agility and the drop kicks. I mean, I've seen a couple of the matches that are on YouTube of him in the, in his fifties, and he was uh, amazingly spry and uh, very uh, in amazing condition for his age. He was, and I made the mistake of assuming the audience know, knew, and of course they don't, that this was originally scheduled as Snooker and Rogers versus Morocco and Albano. They took that match around the horn, and by the time it arrived, Buddy Rogers had his accent. They had a battle royal in Hartford on this date, won by WWF Tag Team Champions Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas. I think if I would have been in the audience, I would not have been happy with that result, you know. I'm sorry. I know you guys are friends, but it's a battle royal. You're supposed to fight. Yeah, yeah. And the WWF uh, has never really been a, um, a battle royal territory. Uh, we we got them very infrequently. Um, yeah, I would have been really pissed off if I had seen that and and seen them, you know, shake hands and uh, hug each other after that and split the prize exactly. And then <laughs> the main event which was originally scheduled for Bob Backlund defending the championship against Mass Superstar. Now it's just a match. In the WWF, in the NWA, we would have seen Iron Sheik against Mass Superstar, but that's just not, not how they did it in the WWF. Yeah, that's a, that's a good matchup. Uh, um, you know, Backlund and Superstar uh, had a good feud going on, and I think, uh, I don't know if you were at the car, John, but the one in Boston, from what I heard about, was a completely wild match where... Uh, Superstar sent both Backland and Arnold Skolland out on stretchers. So uh, that was quite an interesting feud going on. Uh, I was at that match, and I'm pretty sure like that's how the information got out, like uh, that this happened in Boston. Arnold Skolland was down on the concrete floor outside the ring, and Superstar applied the corkscrew neckbreaker to Bob Backland, and both Bob Backland and Arnold Skolland got stretchered out. This was the Saturday before Columbus Day weekend in 1983. <laughs> or Saturday of, excuse me. Now, now, because you were in attendance, were there were there heel fans back in those days? Were there, was he getting some cheers? It was less superstar getting cheers and more of like, a wow, we just saw something, man! Like that's crazy. Backlund and and Skolin getting stretchered out, but B, the Boston crowd had started turning on Bob Backlund. Right around the time Snooka turned, which was October 82, it was slowly getting away from him because earlier in 82, Backland didn't didn't get booed at all. And then by the time Snooker came around and that turn came around, he was getting more and more boos and the crowd absolutely popped when this happened and the stretchers came out. Yeah, Mass Superstar would stick around for a few more months and they kept him very strong. 
And um, I know he went to Montreal after this. He went to AWA for a while. And, and before you know it, he did come back to WWF under other uh, aliases like uh, yes. Strong Machine and later on, uh, of course, from Demolition in 87 or I think it was 87 when they started. It was right before WrestleMania three, the tag team debuted. Now mm-hmm. in Long Island, this is January the 6th, 1984. There's a, an, an interesting result here. SD Jones fought Mr. Fuji to a draw. Now, as a fan who looked through the, the looked at wrestling through the spectrum of a quote unquote Mark's eyes, I had no idea. I would have been very proud of SD Jones holding Mr. Fuji to a draw because Fuji was presented as a much bigger star than him. You know, one thing that impressed me about Mr. Fuji that I only learned in the last six months or so, apparently um, in the 70s, uh, maybe even the early 70s, I guess Vince uh, McMahon Sr., Vince the Elder, uh, approached Fuji and asked him to be his booker to send him around the country, much like uh, Vince uh, Sr. did with Andre. And I guess it was because he was uh, really in demand in all kinds of different markets around the country. And, uh, and and I think, you know, a lot of fans wonder, you know, how could Mr. Fuji, who was named manager, worst manager of the year in the Observer for so many years, why why did he stick around so long? But, uh, but like Strongbow and so many others, I think Fuji had a unique close relationship with Vince Sr. and then Vince Jr. And that's why uh, he was so well taken care of. Yeah, um, he, he had been around since 1981. And I remember Fuji and Saito, they finally lost the titles. I'm like, okay, we're going to see the end of them. And, and Saito left, but Fuji stayed around and he would continue to stay around for the remainder of the decade. Yeah, right around this time, they they did kind of a makeshift tag team with him and Tiger Chung Lee, and uh, mm-hmm. and I think even the two of them ended up having uh, a, a brawl of sorts after after maybe uh, a, a battle royal instead of uh, hugging like uh, Atlas and Johnson. I think they attacked each other with kendo sticks. Uh, that's pr- pretty much what happened. SD Jones had also been in the WWF since 1981, and he seemed to be one of those guys that just had a good, steady job. He was around until like 87 or 88. Yeah, I mean, he stayed around long enough to have an LJN doll made of him, <laughs> and uh, that was quite a good selling doll from what I've heard. Uh, that was one of their best-selling dolls, and let's be honest, it was the only doll of a black wrestler, so the black kids <laughs> bought it. It's about time. It's about time. <laughs> I agree with you. All right. Uh, this is Long Island um, and the Samoa. Now they have a, a battle royal here. This time the winner gets a shot at Bob Backlund, who is no longer champion. The Wild Samoans, all three of them, Afa Sika and Samula, win the championship. And Afa wins a coin toss, gets a match against Bob Backlund, and Bob Backlund defeats Afa. It, Long Island always seemed to get like the the... I was the secondary, not second rate, but like the secondary guys like Afa wrestling Bob Backlund. You had like Billy White Wolf and, and Larry Zabisco challenging superstar Billy Graham back in the day. You were in New York, Steve. How did that come across to you? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I watched the WOR Channel 9 show at midnight every week, and, and you saw the promos for the cards, and you knew that MSG was, you know, the place to be. It was the Mecca. And then, uh, Nassau Coliseum kind of got the crumbs left over crumbs of the matches, you know, like you say, the secondary matches. And uh, and then when the Meadowlands came in, too, in, in 81, uh, that became yet another huge venue where they had to 
find new matches and uh it, it really they had to keep things juggling things just to make things interesting in new york yeah i i do remember it seemed like um you know the meadowlands didn't get regular wwf they seemed to get like four or five cards a year but when they had them they were pushed heavily on wor whereas the the nassau coliseum it was mentioned you know, hey you know championship wrestling is coming to the coming to the Long Island Coliseum and, you know, appearing there will be, and they'd list a few names, but that's it. Yeah. And, and I think, I think part of that too, is they may have had some uh, matches that were, um, had already played at the garden. And I, I know like, for instance, uh, you know, Billy Graham against Bruno was huge at Madison square garden. And I know on the channel nine show, they didn't want to appear repetitive and say, Hey, guess what's coming to Nassau Coliseum yep. Bruno against Billy Graham. So they would just give you like half the main event or tell you someone was going to be there, but they really wouldn't fill in the blanks for you. You know, one major change, I thought of this today that they instituted in 1983 and Steve, you'll know about this. They used to say like, um, Vince McMahon would do interviews before the shows or, or about the shows. And he would say, all-star wrestling is returning to Madison square garden or all-star wrestling returning to the Boston garden. Now it was, or you would have Howard Finkel, like during a match, you know, you know, uh, all-star wrestling returns to Methuen, Massachusetts on Wednesday, February 26th. Now they were calling it the world wrestling federation that started sometime in 1983. And it shows you, it shows me that, even back in 83, they knew they were going, they were going national. No, absolutely. And one thing you see on the weekly TV shows, you see um, these huge banners. Uh, one was for WWF, uh, World Wrestling Federation or WWF. And then the other banner was for Victory Magazine. And for these huge banners that just take up the entire background uh, uh, above the ring. And it, and at the time, you know, as a, as a teenager watching this show, it was like uh, I knew the other wrestling promotions weren't doing this, and and I knew that the WWF was really progressive and and moving forward and taking wrestling into a completely different direction. And we just didn't know how far it was going to go, but yeah. Vince was really, you know, taking them on a new path. No, we, he did. As a matter of fact, uh, I spoke with Randy Smith on the Stick to Wrestling podcast. He used to go to the tapings in Ham, uh, was it Hamburg or Allentown that he went to? I think it was Hamburg. Yeah, he went to the All Stars, and mm -hmm. he remembered that you know wild day where all of a sudden, sudden he shows up, and there are these two giant banners that are like dominating everything. Oh yeah, and and you know as you watch these shows that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, uh, um, you, you you see changes. I mean, you see things that you hadn't heard before on a wrestling show. Like for instance, uh, Vince takes a moment and time out, and he'll say like, uh, and you know we want to hear from you. We want to hear uh, what you have to say, and he puts up a. P.O. Box in Greenwich, Connecticut for, uh, it says wrestling, which is surprisingly, you know, later it would be just WWF, but he wanted people to send in uh, cards and letters, uh, probably to build a marketing list of, uh, or to send a catalog to. Uh, but uh, he did that, and also, like, as the squash matches are coming on, as the, as the matches are ending and they're segueing into the promos for the house shows, you're hearing like music from the police. You're hearing music from Don Henley. And even though that MTV uh, rock and wrestling connection hadn't started yet, you feel, you feel the birth of that just by the fact that they used 
uh, pop music in the bumpers to get to the promos. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I did notice that upgrade. They started doing that in 1981 instead of um, you know just having generic background music. They were using the music that was popular on the radio. And you're right, right. you know they would use the Police, they would use Don Henley, they would use Bruce Springsteen. I mean, it was a it was a big change. Yeah, and, and I mean we have great wrestling throughout the country and great other promotions, but I don't I I don't think any of them use you know hit top 40 music to segue into a commercial. Um, you know, if, if there were promotions that did that, I'm just not aware of it. Oh, I, I cannot think of one. I, I just can't imagine Ole Anderson or Vern Gagne saying, <laughs> Hey, let's get this music on here. <laughs> Championship wrestling, uh, Saturday, January the 7th, 1984. As part of this podcast, I want to do something that I think is going to be fun. Steve and I are going to keep score of which promotions Vince stole the most talent from in 1984, 1985 stole. Isn't the right word. He hired them away. These guys are not properties. The very first ones were the wild Samoans. I remember in late 1982, a visually upset Ole Anderson gets on TV and says that the Samoans have left Georgia they left the tag team titles. They basically ran away from Paul Orndorff and Tommy Rich. And wherever the Samoans went, the wrestling must not be very good there. And I, I had seen the Samoans on WWF TV already. I'm like, what is this? To me, that like was the first real punch in the wrestling war. But championship wrestling opens up with, once again, the Samoans versus SD Jones and Tony Gurria. I'm guessing it's the same match, same match from All-American Wrestling the week before. Oh, absolutely. I'm pretty sure it's the same match. And, uh, you, you know, it's interesting what you just said about, you know, what, what promotion was going to be robbed the most uh, uh, or, or Vince would steal the most free agents from. And, and um, you know, it, it's obvious as you look more into this uh, that Vince and even his father knew what was going to happen uh, as the year progresses because uh, it was in mid-1983 that uh, Vince Sr. actually signed George Scott to be the booker for WWF going forward. And and I think the reason they chose George Scott was they knew that they were going to be raiding talent from uh, the Crockett promotion. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and as, as 83 ends and you have people uh, already there, like uh, Snuka had been there and Orndorff had been there, a, a newcomer. And Piper was coming in, and they were about to get Valentine back. And he was, you know, they were picking this all-star team of young wrestlers in their prime. And they all had, had roots in the Carolinas. I mean, John Studd had been big in the Carolinas, too. And um, so you, you have to look at that, uh, look at Jim Crockett Promotions and the people they would take from there. And, of course, uh, the AWA raid, uh, we'll get into that, too, as we get move it along. Yeah, I, I consider the Samoans the first real raid because back in the day, promoters made sure that, you know, hey, finish up in the territory you're at and then come up here. And the Samoans clearly didn't finish up. Number two, match number two, Eddie Gilbert against Ken Jugan. Eddie Gilbert, I, he came across on TV as the squarest dude known to man. He's he's not he's Bob Backlund's protege, little soft spoken kid from the South. Eddie Gilbert in real life was nothing like that. He was the coolest, fun, one of the coolest, funniest guys I've ever been around. Yeah, it, it's amazing uh, to to see this Eddie Gilbert in his early stage of his career when he was a very good wrestler. Uh, I mean, as a wrestler, I, I guess I would 
you know, give him a comparable with maybe Rick McGraw, that kind of smaller but still very agile and very uh, good, uh, you know, little uh, um, pugnacious type wrestler. Uh, but to see him in UWF, uh, maybe three years later, where he's this cocky, tough, and uh, bearded, and has a different look, and he's kind of like a, almost like a piper in the UWF, uh, smaller than most, but has a lot of uh, a fight in him. Um, he really made a quite a metamorphosis in UWF. He did, and I think the Rick McGraw comparison is a very good one. Those two are very similar. Match number three, a squash, Paul Orndorff against Steve Lombardi. Georgia is up to two wrestlers that the WWF has taken. (laughs) Well, you know, they they had gotten a a lot, a lot of talent from Georgia, and um, a lot of it was just going to be used as enhancement, kind of like how uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 ended up being used just use them as, as filler on cards at house shows. But um, yeah, d- definitely uh, uh, some of these guys would, would become major players as uh, we move into the uh, early days of WrestleMania. Absolutely. Now the show ends, I, I have listed that they had three matches, those three matches, and then interviews with Paul Orndorff, interviews with the Iron Sheik, oh, that makes three for Georgia, interviews with Tito Santana, whoops, that's four for Georgia, <laughs> and Sergeant Slaughter. Wow. Yeah. And Slaughter just coming off of his huge run uh, in uh, Mid-Atlantic. So there's another uh, Mid-Atlantic star that uh, George Scott used to work with. So. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, now we move on to All-Star Wrestling, the secondary show. This is January 7th, 1984. It has Bob Backlund, and this is a major uh, event in WWF history, versus Samuel from the Samoans. and. All three Samoans and Lou Albano are out there, ready to wrestle Backlund, and it's four on one. So Bob Backlund goes to the back to get some some backup, and he comes out with Hulk Hogan, who had not been seen in the WWF since he left as a heel in May 1981. I mean, again, what a historic moment. You know, for fans that haven't seen this, and I know a lot of the fans always love to say, oh, Vince ignores history. Vince covers everything up. He he actually does say here, as he's announcing, he does say the return of Hulk Hogan. He may have said it a couple of times. I know he said it at least once. So he did acknowledge that he had been in the WWF before, which is kind of interesting. And also interesting uh, to, to call this match, we have a brand new color commentator, Mean Gene Okerlund. And Gene Oakland to, debuted on this show, yes. And I want to hear your your thoughts, John, on that. Uh, my thought on Gene Oakland, uh, uh at that at that time, uh, in early '84, I hadn't been buying wrestling magazines for many years, and I hadn't uh, been buying any of the. Uh, uh, I didn't know about the Observer. I didn't know about newsletters at the time, so I didn't even know who Gene Oakland was at that time. I he at the time I thought maybe this is Vince's brother-in-law. I don't know who this <laughs> is, but but. I know I know a lot of the fans, and this was kind of my impression of Gene Oakland at first. He had that carnival barker type sound to him, which was very, uh, very different than what we would end up knowing. Mean Gene is kind of this laid back, more casual uh, guy. Uh, you know, he would you know put a lot of uh, chutzpah into his speak, like, uh, oh, here he comes, Vince, coming down the aisle. You know, and he'd act very kind of like very um, different than we would know Mean Gene. And uh, in this match, uh, he does the the call with Vince uh, as Hulk Hogan returns after that lengthy absence. 
Well, I had never heard of Gene Okerlund before because he got no publicity in the magazines. Like the after magazines would talk about Gordon Soley, the announcer for Florida and Georgia. They actually made a big deal about Gordon Soley. They would mention Vince McMahon as the WWF announcer. I think that's kind of it. You know, so Oakland, the first time I saw him, and I'm just being honest here, I was like, who is this buffoon? Like you said, he was a, a carnival barker. Saturday night, come <laughs> on down to the Boston Garden. Vince McMahon, when he would do that, he would be almost somber. You know, this coming for uh, Saturday night, the Boston Garden, all-star wrestling returns. And Oakland would just go out there and start screaming. And, you know, everyone noticed it. And really, uh, no one liked it. Yeah, I, I, I hated him at first. I really did. Um, I, I, I think it probably took him maybe a few months to kind of find his role with the company and kind of chill out a bit. I mean, he was just too jacked up to be uh, relaxed a little bit. But when he when he found his niche, he really found it. And he became fantastic, really, for what he did, especially, you know, holding the mic for all those promos. But um, yeah, here as a color man, he he was just the pits. He was pretty bad. I I never got into Oakland's act. It's it's nothing personal against him. I just never got into his act. And uh, I mean, like I said, it was like a, a hurricane the whole time. And and I I just didn't like it. Now let, let's talk about. They had a segment, uh, and it started right around fall of 1983. It was called Victory Corner. And it was conducted by a gentleman named Robert DeBoard. Victory Magazine was the WWF's in-house magazine. They, you know, they were going to publish and they were going to run everyone else out of business, I suppose. And they had Victory Corner with this gentleman named Robert DeBoard, who just seemed so over his head doing what he was doing. He had absolutely no charisma. He would just, you know, throw these these very generic questions at the wrestlers. It, it was a very quick segment, too. Yeah, I, I've seen some of those recently uh, for the first time since they originally aired. And, and he was awful. And he was, I mean, it was almost awful to the point that was he doing this on purpose? Was he trying to be this bad to kind of maybe showcase the talent more? But, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, this eventually became Piper's Pit. But just this um, few weeks or a couple of months of Victory Magazine was almost unbearable. It really was. We will be having audio for review purposes of of Victory Corner. So you're all going to get to hear what this was like. And you're also going to get to hear a couple of shows down the road, the historic episode where Piper took over. And it was just absolutely crazy. I have the audio of that. And we will be sharing it with you. Uh, let me see. Pat Patterson, who had been doing this since 1981, had been replaced. What did you think of Pat Patterson as a commentator? I think he did a good job. I mean, a, a um, you know, I, I had when I first started watching wrestling or WWF, it was our Antonita Rocca. You know, he had a very strong accent, and uh, oh, Rocca could, was bad. Yeah, and you could you could understand a few words, but he had a very kind of congenial way about him, like a grandfatherly or an uncle that you kind of liked him and just liked to see him there. And he'd always say the same thing every week, like, "I'm going to take off my shoes and watch this match," you know, something yes. like that. 
<laughs> and then, and then, and then, when he uh, passed away at, at the age of fifty, and he looked a, a lot older than fifty, but uh, uh, Bruno eventually replaced him. And and Bruno, of course, had the gravitas of being Bruno, and he was the, you know, the guy who was the star of the promotion for nearly twenty years. And uh, so when he left, uh, Patterson took his role, and you know, Patterson and Vince, I think, had a great uh, working relationship, and they worked together later on as Booker and uh, owner and. Um, I think this is the beginning of where they really kind of realized they had a chemistry together. Yeah. When Antonino Rocca died in 76, for a while, Vince McMahon did commentary on his own. And then in 79, they brought in Bruno, if I recall correctly, either late 78 or earlier 79. And of course, Bruno being Bruno, ever, ever, it was great having him on. Um, I, I've always been a big believer in the two-man booth. I think one guy being in the booth, he's just sitting there talking to himself. Three guys is too much. Everyone's trying to get their stuff in, and but two is perfect. And I think, you know, going from Bruno to Patterson to Okerlund worked out. And Steve, I don't know if you remember this. They had the Shea Stadium show Saturday, August the 9th, 1980. Okay. And then the next week, Championship Wrestling Bruno was gone after beating Larry Zbysko in Shea Stadium, and Pat Patterson was suddenly in his place. And it was just kind of a weird coincidence. Like, okay, they had the big Shea match, and all of a sudden, Bruno was gone. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I, I I hadn't picked up on that, and but it kind of makes sense. It was kind of like um, that chapter of the WWF was really closing. I know Bruno did come back in '81, and. Uh, had matches in Boston and wrapped up his career and retired in Japan. And, and then he came back again in, in 85 and we'll get into that eventually. But uh, yeah, P- Patterson, Patterson did a very good job and, and he knew, he knew what angles to push and he knew what to emphasize. And uh, he was very uh, good in his role, but again, you know, as Mick Foley or someone would say his, his uh, mastery of the Eng- English language wasn't too good. No, <laughs> it, it wasn't. I mean, you know, He's originally from Montreal, and then he would say things like, oh, the three Samoan or whatever. But <laughs> we kick off All-Star Wrestling with Tiger Chung Lee and Mr. Fuji against SD Jones and Steve Lombardi. Uh, Steve Lombardi would go on to have a long career in the WWF. He was just getting started out here. Tiger Chung Lee and Mr. Fuji, they were kind of an underneath tag team, and those are useful. Yeah, yeah. the WWF never had like a deep roster of tag teams. I mean, they eventually would in the mid-'80s with uh, – all the the famous teams like the Hart Foundation and the Bulldogs and the Killer Bees, but at this point, having maybe two or three heel teams and two or three babyface teams was the max that they would ever have. So it was it was good to have them around. No, they they usually had like one top babyface team, one top heel team, and and the rest of them were were makeshift teams. Now we have a big debut. Mike Dorsett has the privilege of wrestling the debuting Dr. D. David Schultz. But wait, Dr. D. David Schultz is being managed by a guy named Roddy Piper. Now, Piper was a huge star from the beginning in the WWF. I mean, he had been a huge star in the Carolinas and Georgia. He had turned babyface, and now he's back to being a heel. I kind of think watching uh, watching the recent A and E biography about Roddy Piper, I kind of think that um, just the intensity of that uh, dog collar match with Greg Valentine, 
I kind of think that at first uh, Vince wanted to play him low key. I mean, have him be a heat machine as a manager type rather than as a wrestler. And they paired him with Dr. D and with Orndorff and even a little bit with John Studd. But you know, they kept Roddy on the sidelines. And one thing that's interesting about these TV matches that you're mentioning, Roddy didn't even get in the ring. He just stayed like uh, you know on the apron or below. He didn't even enter the ring. But when it was time for his interview, he was you know completely loud and obnoxious, kind of over the top. But I think he was delivering a message that I'm here and, and I have a place. And, and and maybe in his mind and maybe the promotion too, they had just lost Ernie Roth, a Grand Wizard in um, October, I think, a few months earlier. And maybe at that time, they were thinking maybe Piper would be his replacement. Maybe he'd be a full-time manager and eventually become a wrestler. But we all know how this eventually plays out. One thing that I have emphasized over the years, I mean, we're talking about stuff that happened, you know, 36 years ago. And I've always emphasized this about the old WWF. I think until they started putting together the plan for WrestleMania three, they were throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stuck. And this is a primary example. In my opinion, they just sign Roddy Piper and they figure they know they've got a real talent, but they're not sure what they're going to do with him. And well, let's just wheel him out there on TV. Yeah. And and if that was their decision, it was a great decision because uh, I I know people that didn't even really like wrestling up in Binghamton, where I'm from, that would eventually gravitated to it because Piper was on every week and his his Piper's Pit segment. It was almost like uh, years later, the Martin Downey Jr. show, just a show where anything could happen, you know, all hell breaks loose. And and people were gravitated to Roddy Piper because he was excitement you know he was just anything goes and and that was very appealing on a wrestling show where we're used to squash matches and in interviews no i i agree with you and piper was you know he was very charismatic he definitely had the gift of gab he was one of the i was going to say one of the best interviews of the era but really he's one of the best interviews of all time tito santana versus bill dixon Steve, i noticed after reviewing some footage of 83 and 84 WWF. Tito seems to be getting a big push. Now, in 83, he had a match at Madison Square Garden against uh, Iron Mike Sharp that went to a 20-minute draw. So at that point, I'm thinking, okay, well, he's going to be a mid-card guy just like he was last time. But he's at this point, he's really getting a push on TV. They're behind him. I think the promotion realized that he was he was someone that they could really take advantage of. I mean, it was good to have a diverse I mean, much like the old WWF had, um, you know, lots of people from lots of different uh, ethnicities. It was great to have this young uh, Spanish guy. It was a good looking guy, a very good wrestler in the ring. And uh, I I don't think they could have picked anybody better than Santana. Um, You know, I know eventually we get Ricky Steamboat in and he's considered one of the all time great baby faces. But I would put Santana, uh, you know, maybe right beneath him as being one of the great pure baby faces because uh, he put on great matches almost for the his entire stay in the WWF, which lasted a very long time. It definitely did. He was still there uh, in the 90s. Wow. So I I, I agree with you that, you know, he was a a spectacular in-ring wrestler and the WWF did 
well by elevating him. It was a an excellent decision. Next matchup, a kind of a, a, a strange story here. The Tonga Kid against Frank Williams. Tonga Kid at this point occasionally gets a win on TV, but usually he's on the losing end. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really know a lot about his background as a wrestler. I think he actually came from uh, Ron Fuller's promotion. I think that's where he had been a name before this. But uh, yeah, it, just in this time frame, he's just someone that's almost like a fill-in. Uh, but later on, uh, as I think Snuka may have left for a little while, he he got a lot of uh, a push and really became a player for at least a brief time in the WWF. I think he was only 18 years old when he started with the WWF. And well, we'll get more into that later. Tonga's going to have an interesting 1984. <laughs> we finally get the visual of the Iron Sheik entering the ring, wearing the WWF championship as he wrestles a guy named Denny Hill, who should come to the ring to wackety sacks. Um, <laughs> it just made it real. It, to me, seeing Iron Sheik walk to the ring with that belt, with Fred Blassie, it was it was cold water to the face, man. Yeah, it it, um, it was a a new era in wrestling, and uh, and, and I think that that goofy uh, belt that he wore, I think, it was Backlund's uh, last uh, championship belt, the big green belt. I think it was the big. Yeah. It, 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 it to me one of the most ugliest belts of all time, but uh, but Sheik had it, and he was very proud of it, and. Uh, and, and yeah, at that time, we didn't know. We didn't know it was going to be the beginning of a new era of the Sheik uh, or if someone was going to come in. And, uh, of course, we just saw the introduction of Hulk Hogan, and uh, definitely that was about to change everything. Now, the next, excuse me, the next match is Don Morocco, the Intercontinental Champion, uh, the Magnificent Morocco, against Miguel Vasquez. You can imagine how this match went. Here's something that a lot of people don't know. At one point, after the Sheik won the title, Morocco gets on TV in Boston and he starts berating both Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik. And he's saying he's saying about Bob Backlund, how could you lose the title to that pig, to that absolute pig? And I was taken aback by it because heels didn't talk that way about each other. And I'm saying, OK, is Morocco the next WWF champion? Are they about to turn him? Now that that would have been something that, that would have been really interesting, but uh, I, I, I guess uh, you know, looking back on it now, maybe that could have been a plan B for Vince if Vince hadn't gotten Hogan. That could have could have worked out. But as you're going to see over the next few weeks as we continue with this, uh, Morocco, who had gotten this huge, huge push in '83 and the wars he had with Rocky Johnson, and of course the bigger war he had with Snuka was about wrapping up around this time. And uh, I think Vince knew that Morocco was going to be one of the key, key players of this national expansion, but he was kind of in the burnout phase right now. So what you're going to see is less of Morocco. Uh, you'll see him in squash matches on TV periodically, but um, I think behind the scenes, Morocco is going to be going to Hawaii get some surfing and get 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 some rays and then he can come back maybe later in the year or beginning of the next year uh fully uh, refreshed and revitalized i could i mean that is eventually what happened i mean we mentioned last week that morocco he'd had his run he had his run against bob backland he had the series against rocky johnson 
Then he had the series against Jimmy Snuka. So this is one of the greatest and most memorable heel runs that in WWF history that Morocco uh, had had. But all good things come to an end. Final match is Sergeant Slaughter against Ken Jugan. Slaughter is already getting a little bit of sympathy because he his manager, the Grand Wizard, had passed away and now he was by himself. He was no longer, you know, that that hateable Sergeant Slaughter that that whipped Bob Backlund with a riding crop on TV and put welts on his back. Well, I, I noticed too in this time frame, uh, and I watched these matches. Um, the for whatever reason, maybe it was something that Vince told the cameraman. Uh, they really focused in on uh, Slaughter's face and uh, just followed him intensely in the ring. Even in the, like before the match, there was time where he was just in the ring, and then they played the Marine Corps hymn as entrance music and. And you could tell that the people in the audience were, were rooting for him, uh, uh, maybe as, uh, as just as a patriot, being a, a, a Marine and the Marine Corps him. But his size, his remarkable size he had, uh, he really, um, it, it was time for him to turn into a good guy. It really was. It, uh, we were all starting to get that sense. And, you know, with Iron Sheik, as WWF champion, I mean, it looked like they they had that all lined up. I mean, this is what it looked like in 84. So that was the last match uh, with Roddy Piper debuting. Mid-Atlantic now has a point on the scoreboard. AWA, where Dr. D. David Schultz come from. Oh, let's get in Oakland and Hogan as well. So the AWA is up to three points, but the Georgia still has the lead. Uh, All American continues to be a bit of a throwaway show. They air Nikolai Volkov versus Art Cruz from Mid-South Wrestling. Uh, They show the Iron Sheik winning the WWF title from Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden. And then they have an interesting match. Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, who had not been featured on WWF TV yet. They have a manager named Mad Dog Managoff, and they're against Kevin Collins and Terry Daniels. This had to be from St. Louis. Yeah, I, I think it was. And uh, Terry Daniels had a, a little bit of a uh, uh, babyface run as being part of uh, Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps. I think as that hasn't happened yet. But um, I, I don't think they could have picked two better workers to come into the WWF, not known as a great working wrestling federation, than Adonis and Murdoch pairing them up together. What, what an incredible team uh, they would end up being. Yeah, it just it's amazing that they, they were chosen to be uh, eventually uh, be uh, the top heel team in the promotion. I mean, I remember watching them in 1984, and I, I didn't know what work rate was, but I knew these guys were, were great wrestlers. I mean, they they knew how to cheat like no other tag team I had <laughs> ever seen. With the additions from uh, Adrian Adonis from the AWA and Dick Murdoch from Georgia, Georgia has the lead 5-4 to four over the AWA when it comes to wrestlers being rated. Now, the WWF comes to the Riverfront Coliseum January 8th, 1984. Kind of an interesting main event. The Iron Sheik defends against Pat Patterson once again. When you win the WWF title, just the guys you were supposed originally going to be wrestling were now going to be the top challengers. Well, Pat Patterson had been... Uh 
a uh, you know, big time player in the WWF. And um, I would say uh, in a kayfabe world where uh, you know we would rank the guys in the top 10, uh, Patterson did have his share wins over a highly ranked Ivan Koloff in 1983. So I would say he'd be worthy of a title shot against Iron Sheik. Oh, definitely. And, and you knew coming in, like it was going to be uh, an underneath match where Iron Sheik went over the, the aging veteran. But I'm, I'm sure when this was all booked, they had no idea that, that Hulk Hogan was coming in. Mm-hmm. I agree. No. All right. Now, and once again, Cincinnati is not a a traditional WWF city. So it's an Ole Anderson city. And I'm sure the other promoters like, you know, Vern, Fritz, whoever are like, okay, you know, Vince and Ole are fighting. That's not going to, that's not going to bother us. And then the next night they are in Akron, Ohio, Uh, same show. Well, same main event, Iron Sheik defeats Pat Patterson by disqualification. Bob Backlund was scheduled to defend the title against Don Morocco. And it, it's kind of late in Morocco's run to be getting a title shot. He'd been around since December, 1982. Yeah. I just, um, I, I I'm as surprised as you are too, but again, they're going to these new markets that they hadn't really been in before. And, uh, I know they were changing up the uh, top matches a lot. They were giving uh, Backlund a different uh, a variety of challengers. So this one was scheduled before the title change, and it just happened to be Morocco. And, and um, you know, as we would see in the near future, he would kind of move down the card a, a bit, but he would come back uh, later, mainly next year, as, as another big-time player for WWF. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that in March and April of 1983, Morocco got title shots at Madison Square Garden. So you wouldn't be bringing that back in January. But if you were in a relatively small market like Akron, well, A, you haven't seen the match yet. And B, it's it's a secondary market. They didn't get the the top matches until until later on. Oh, yeah. And that that was an area that had really been devoid of, of a lot of wrestling. I mean, uh, I think Sheik used to put on shows there, uh, and he, he really shut down in 80 or 81, so they may not have had a lot of cards there. And Morocco was really one of the best uh, workers up until this time. I know he'd eventually gain some weight and lose some of his uh, ability, but uh, he was definitely one of the top WWF workers at this point. Yeah, um, I think Ole Anderson started running Akron like 81 or 82, but I could be mistaken. Okay. Banger, Maine, where my family almost relocated almost 40 years ago. <laughs> kind of glad we didn't. Um, but Banger, uh, there was a story uh, my friend Bo James told me about Banger, Maine. Like you, cr- now, you cross the main line from New Hampshire into Maine, and then you got to drive three more hours to get up to Banger. And uh, Jer- Jimmy Valiant once told Bo James that, like, if the wives wanted to go on the road with the wrestlers, they'd be like, all right, why don't you come on this tour when they're going up to Bangor? And that was the last they ever heard about like, <laughs> having, having the wives on the road again. Well, I, I, I think I think it's most famously known as the town that uh, Vince uh, Sr. gave to Vince Jr. to let him run that town. And I think uh, you know, Vince, Vince Jr. promoted shows there in the 70s and early 80s and uh, kind of where he cut his teeth on promoting. And he had some unusual matchups there. I think he had like superstar defending against Ken Patera, you know, matches you really wouldn't see anywhere else. But um, yeah, that was out in the boonies. All right. 
No, they would they would run stuff in, in Bangor to see, you know, give it a test run. I mean, at least Bob Backlund said that in his book, and I have no reason to, to doubt him. Nothing against Bangor, Maine. If anyone happens to live there, it's just a little too far out there for me. Uh, but they were getting a big match. Bob Backlund versus Paul Orndorff, scheduled for the WWF Championship, goes to a double disqualification. And then we have Iron Sheik defending the championship against Chief J. Strongbow Ono. Well, Strongbow did get uh, two or three shots uh, against uh, Sheik. And um, I I believe, uh, I think uh, he had actually wrestled Stasiak too prior to Stasiak's uh, loss to Bruno. So uh, Strongbow was uh, really good at challenging these interim champions. I, I actually think that uh, that Strongbow-Stasiak match took place in my old stomping grounds of North Attleboro, Massachusetts. But anyway, <laughs> I, I grew up like an hour from this, or an hour, I, a mile from this arena that had WWF wrestling every Friday night until it burned down right Jack after Witchies. I moved out. Yeah, Jack sure. Witchies. It's right down the street from me, like literally a mile away. Sure. Championship wrestling. January 14th, 1984. I think this is... This is really smart. They have the underneath tag team, kind of a mid-card tag team of Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee wrestling the team of Bob Backlund and Hulk Hogan. Bob Backlund kind of gives Hulk Hogan his endorsement, and I think that was really important. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was a passing of the torch, uh, to, to, say, to, to say the least. Um, when you watch this, you can kind of see... Uh, even though they're trying to per- portray these two guys as buddy buddy, you can see Backlund kind of a bit standoffish, like he doesn't look ho- Hogan in the eye, and and they don't have um, they don't have any chemistry together. You know, you can tell they're not really friends. Uh, but but I will say this: um, seeing Hogan's first WWF appearances and how jacked up he was, as not just as physically, but his his enthusiasm and the way he talked. It was so night and day from Backland. I mean, I know Backland in the beginning days it was the old golly G and the you know I'm I'm shy and all this and and he improved over the years with his interviews, but he never really got to be like uh, exciting on interviews or I mean he was just so incredibly bland. And, and I know I never was a big Hulkamaniac, but uh, I think for a lot of us fans watching, just the fact that Hogan was so incredibly different. Then back on it was re- really refreshing. It was just nice to see something different. I, I've always defended Bob Backlund's interviews when he was WWF champion, or at least like the the first two thirds of it, um, as he he did interviews that like a Tom Seaver would do, or that uh, a, a Joe Montana, Roger Staubach. He came across as a legitimate athlete, but. It's pro wrestling. We want larger than life stars like Hulk Hogan and. You know, and, and wrestling was changing. You were getting that more kick-ass babyface type, like, you know, Hacksaw Doug and Mr. Wrestling 2, Junkyard Dog. And now, finally, in the WWF, we're getting this guy who's taking it to the next level. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's hilarious to look back on it now. Uh, I, I heard some shoot interview recently. Somebody said, oh, yeah, uh, Hogan and the NWA, they didn't know what to do with them. So he went and ended up going to New York. And it's like, you know, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan together. I mean, that's a match made in heaven. And Hulk Hogan had so much personality. I, I, I think a, a lot of it, too, I think that this 
Vince knew how to promote this larger than life guy. And I think that the NWA promoters and Vern too, they were so stuck in the old way of thinking, oh, this guy's a super heavyweight. We can't make him a champion. He's he's six foot six. He's 305 pounds. We can't make him a world champion. And of course, Vince does because everything Vince is going to do is going to be larger than life and, and like a comic book come to life. So we're seeing the kind of the dawn of a new age of wrestling right here. I think it was 88 or 89, Wade Keller did an interview with Vern Gagne. Vern, Vern Gagne said in this interview that Hulk Hogan was too big to be the world's champion. It would never work. And if he had said that in 83 or 84, okay, he said it in like 87 or 88. <laughs> it's already been proven that you're wrong, and he's still clinging to that to that outdated belief that you know the WrestleMania three had already happened. What more do you need to demonstrate that this guy, yeah, you can make him world's heavyweight champion? I, I kind of think it's like um the, the promoters like Vern and like the NWA promoters, they had that old school mentality. Well, you know, the champion has to be someone that's smaller or more adaptable and can fight different formats. I, I think that the fans that rooted for Hogan, it was kind of like the fans that rooted for the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Yankees or the Lakers, uh, you know, a team that is so stocked to the max and has like all-stars at every position. I mean, th- that's what people seem to want to see or, or, or they get appealed by. And, and Hogan was just so dominant uh, for the most part against his opponents. I mean, I think people, they felt like they were part of a winning team by supporting him. So I think that's part of why he was so popular. That's an interesting analogy. I like that. Sergeant Slaughter against Mike Dorsett airs. Uh, then we have Jimmy Superfly Snuka against Paul Butcher Vashon. Uh, Vashon used to be a little bit of a big deal in the WWF, but now he's strictly re- relegated to uh, TV squashes. Jimmy Snuka coming into 1984. We already talked about he, him turning babyface in 1982, having an amazing run in 1983. And what were your thoughts about Jimmy Snuka coming into the year 1984? I mean, you you thought that he was still this this you know iconic, you know, so he was so important to the card. He was so important to the federation. Uh, I didn't really, you know, again, not having the observer at the time, I didn't know the gravity of what had happened to him with the Nancy Argentina thing. You know, a few months before. I think that the promotion knew then that, that they could only just take him up just so high that they could never make him champion or, or make him in that really important area, like the rarefied air. They couldn't take him up to that level because they couldn't trust him to that level. Uh, but, it, you know, it's just a fan watching. You knew that he was uh, a very important attraction, much like Andre, but, but just on a different level than, say, Andre. Now, you see, when when Sheik, when I got word of Sheik winning the title, you know, the first thing I thought was, okay, you know, are they going to give it to Jimmy Snuka? I did not know about the Nancy Argentino situation until like 87, 88. Even then, it was like, oh, you know, this might have happened. And And as the years have gone on, it's like, no, that that did happen either accidentally or on purpose. He killed this poor woman. Yeah, I I, um, I never I never really 
liked Snuka after hearing about that. And, uh, you know, as, as this year unfolds and he ends up having this massive feud with Roddy Piper that we'll eventually get to, in in a you know in a kayfabe sense, Piper wins that feud as he he really you know won more of the matches and and he never really lost like a definitive match to Snuka other than like one that was on Coliseum video I think I, I think in some ways Snuka was just being punished for what had happened with Nancy. Oh well, I'll tell you what we that happened that aired around here. Uh, I want to say May or June, and we'll we'll talk about that as we get to it. Paul Orndorff gets a squash match against Hercules Vasquez, Morocco against SD Jones. I liked SD Jones, but even during this era, even when I was younger watching this, it would like SD would get the advantage in a match. Okay. He'd finally get some offense in. The heel would back into the corner, and SD would just sit there blinking his eyes and clutching his fist and just like not doing anything. It was frustrating. Yeah, he he was somebody the fans uh, that watching at home really got behind, and and he had a good look, you know, good body, and uh, had some ability. But um, I think Vince just pegged him for that role of the kind of the um, you know prelimer mid Carter you know guy that just is never going to get over the hump. No, and it, it definitely appeared that way to me as well. I mean, I, I talked about this. He came back in 81. He got a little bit of a push. He did an interview on TV that was, it was a little bit goofy, but it was like fun goofy. And I, I was like, wow, I like this guy. I've never heard him talk before. And then right away, no more push for SD Jones. Um, Finally, we wrap up with, this is interesting. I think the WWF since around 82 had a wrestler named Mac Rivera and he was strictly an enhancement guy. Never won on TV ever. Maybe he would win at the arenas if he were matched up against a guy with, you know, in that same status. Now he de- re-debuts as Jose Luis Rivera and he's winning matches on TV. Like, no mention of the name change, nothing like that. Just he's Jose Luis Rivera now, and now he's good enough to win matches. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I, I don't really know why they did that. Uh, I mean, I think, I think uh, this kind of continued for a little bit, and then he eventually became a conquistador, and I think maybe one of the shadows, maybe. Yep. And and he worked, uh, you know, undercards and stuff, and never really got any uh, more than this, but. Um, he seemed capable in the ring, uh, but wasn't uh, didn't really have any attributes that would say, yeah, we have to push this guy or that this guy is money. He didn't seem like he had much personality and was just kind of like uh, your uh, working, uh, working class, hardcore, hard working wrestler. I just I just never understood it. And well, we'll be speaking more about Jose Luis Rivera's winning streak as it goes on. But right now, the streak is at one match uh, <laughs> all star wrestling. We get a a uh, rerun of Hogan and Backlund against uh, Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee uh, Iron Sheik against Ken Jugan. Once again, the shock of seeing Iron Sheik with the championship. Uh, Jimmy Snuka against Charlie Fulton. I don't know if you remember this, Steve. When Charlie Fulton first got here in 1981, he was winning matches on TV, maybe three, four matches. And then just like that, he is strictly a, a jobber, a guy who never, ever wins on television. Yeah, he, he was a guy I was always impressed with. He had good ability. He was one of those uh, 
good uh, uh, journeyman type wrestlers that uh, could have been a star, maybe in a smaller promotion or a different circuit. I mean, we never, I don't think we ever had an interview with him unless it was on uh, one of the TNT episode of Unsung Heroes, perhaps. Oh, wow. But, uh, but, but he, he had ability, and, uh, and I, I kind of felt bad that when his uh, mini push just kind of evaporated overnight. No, it, it, overnight isn't the word. I, it was just done, like right, right <laughs> away. I don't know why they featured him on TV and then turned on the guy. I, I've had people tell me that like he was an excellent worker in Mid-Atlantic and someone could have done something with him, but I, I just don't think he had the, the charisma to pull that off. Next up is Victory Corner with Magnificent Morocco. I wish I had the audio for this, but I don't. Uh, Paul Orndorff's push continues against Mike Torset. And then we have the tag team champions, Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas against Israel Matia and Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley was a guy who had some physical charisma and got a little bit of a push in world class in 1987. Yeah, he actually, uh, he actually became battle cat for a little while in WWF around maybe 87, now 88 or 89, something yeah. like that. Maybe even 90. And I, I remember him most for in uh, 1986, uh, on the same TV taping where uh, um, Adonis and uh, Orton and the Morocco did a number on Piper uh, on that same taping, Bob Bradley wrestled the returning after a many year absence, superstar Billy Graham. And that, that was the match where superstar, apparently his hip popped out or his hip burst and uh, they got through the match, but he couldn't wrestle. And that's when they had uh, the great uh, Dr. Andrews did the uh, Billy's hip surgery. So, now, I, it, this is outside of, of the realm of, you know, uh, what we're talking about here. But um, I heard a long time ago that they had huge plans for superstar Billy Graham and that he they had planned on him wrestling Randy Savage at WrestleMania three. And he just physically couldn't do it. Yeah, I think, uh, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I think that the famous uh, uh, angle where uh, uh, Bruno is interviewing Savage and Bruno snaps and uh I think that may have been um, not that Billy was going to be the announcer, but I think they were going to have a confrontation that would have led to a Billy Graham uh, uh, savage feud. But it wasn't meant to be. And those matches would have been would have been horrendous since Billy Graham could barely walk at this point. So Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, let me see. We wrap up uh, all star wrestling with mass superstar against Jimmy Jackson and then Boston Garden, January 14th, 1984. It says here it drew 14,800 fans. I can tell you that Boston Garden was completely full. I don't know like what the capacity was for wrestling, but it was either sold out or awfully close to it. And I've talked about this on Stick to Wrestling before. WWF Battle Royal Night is the absolute worst. And I'm going to give you an example of this, right? <laughs> It, it was the worst. I, I'm going to be honest, too. I don't remember a lot about this show because there's not a lot to remember. The main event was an 18-man battle royal, and they had that early in the show. Sergeant Slaughter won the battle royal, and he was getting cheers. Now, listen to the rest of this card, okay? You had Bob Backlund versus Iron Sheik in a rematch. This had originally been announced as Iron Sheik challenging Backlund, but we all know what happened. Uh, I remember it not being a very good match. Now, listen to the rest of this show, okay? This is the Boston Garden, and people paid money to see these matches. John Callahan and Rudy Diamond go to a draw. 
Eddie Gilbert pins Renee Goulet. Salvatore Belomo over Charlie Fulton. Uh, Tony Atlas over Bob Bradley. Tiger <laughs> Chung Lee defeats Tony Gurria. Sergeant Slaughter over Pete Darty. Paul Orndorff over SD Jones. Pat Patterson over Iron Mike Sharp. Two of those like 10 matches are 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 just not television squashes. This is what stunk about Battle Royal Night. And I went anyway. It's it's amazing to think that they had that many uh, job guys in the Battle Royal. Is that is that how that worked out? They had a bunch of jobbers in the Battle Royal? Oh yeah, they always did. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's really bad. I can only remember one Battle Royal in New York at Madison Square Garden during the either the Bruno or Graham or Backland era, it was in 1980 and it was kind of out there to push Larry Zabisco, you know, give Larry Zabisco more of a push. He would eventually get a title shot against Bob Backland and obviously go on to the Shea stadium match. That seemed to be the point of that, but yeah, I guess New York managed to evade this horrible fate. I, I just think WWF and battle royals were just like oil and uh, water. It just did not mix. Uh, you know, it was just, it was just, I mean, it was huge on the West coast. It was huge in LA. It was huge in San Francisco in the AWA. I know they'd have a month of battle royals and things like that, but it, it just was, it was foreign to the WWF. They didn't know how to work it. And the fans were foreign to it. I mean, I'm, Sure, some of the fans knew about it from the magazines, but nobody was clamoring for a battle royal in the WWF. You know, it, I mean, it, it sounded so good on TV. They're going to put these twenty guys in the ring. They're going to be fighting for ten thousand, twenty thousand, whatever dollars, and it, it, it sounded like mayhem. They were going to have you know stretchers ready for guys getting hurt when they go over the top rope. And then I, I just remember seeing it for the first time, and it was nothing short of awful. Well, all I can say is in one of our upcoming episodes, and maybe next week's episode, we are going to talk about one of the only good WWF Battle Royals ever, and it was done in St. Louis in this time frame. So we'll get to that uh, in one of the next episodes. That that was actually a good Battle Royal by, by any standard, not just WWF standard. Wrestling at the Chase, uh, let's bring up a guy whose name has not come up yet. Long-standing WWF favorite Ivan Putski wrestles Dennis Stamp and goes over. I mean, Ivan Putski was in the WWF when I first started watching in 1976. He came back in like late, early 79, excuse me, disappeared again, came back early 82. Ivan Putski, I mean this in a complimentary manner, believe it or not, he was the Jimmy Valiant of the WWF, the Jimmy Valiant of JCP in that, you know, Jimmy Valiant could go to some small town in Virginia, North Carolina, wherever, and he would draw a crowd as a main eventer. Ivan Putski could come to the, you know, the Portsmouth Ice Arena or an arena in Saugus, Massachusetts, and he would draw. Well, yeah, I, I can I can agree with that firsthand because uh, we had many backland title defenses in Binghamton, New York, where I'm from. But on those nights when uh, uh, he was backland was unavailable, we we had Putski many times in Strongbow too. Putski would wrestle guys like Patera and Koloff, and uh, you know guys of uh, Greg Valentine was another. Uh, and they were good matches. I mean, they weren't great matches, but uh, you're absolutely right. He would sell the place out or 
or or at least get a good crowd because people loved his gimmick. And and in this era, they did keep him strong. I mean, when Hogan did win the title, he was one of the people that they allowed to come in and celebrate and pour the champagne and stuff. So in this era of early 84, they're keeping him strong. They're keeping him one of the key players. Uh, you know, he's not at snooker level anymore, but he's, uh, you know, a push guy. And, um, and that will change as the year goes on. A lot's changing as the year goes on. But I mean, you know, I, I remember in 1982, fall of 1982, they had Ivan Putski against superstar Billy Graham right here in Nashua at the junior high gym. And a month later, they had Ivan Putski main eventing again against Ray Stevens. And then they suddenly stopped having wrestling in Nashua. But anyway, another interesting name. On the show, actually, two more interesting names on this show that we haven't discussed. Mil Moscaris against Ken Jugan. Moscaris came to the WWF in 77 to challenge superstar Billy Graham. He was a not really a regular in 78, but he made special appearances. And then 81, he comes back once again, making special appearances, uh, not a full timer. And now he's back in the WWF in 1984. My initial reaction when I found out that Mil Moscaris was in the WWF was I thought he would get the same level push that he got during the superstar Billy Graham era, which makes no sense. But that's I was brainwashed by the after magazines thinking Mil Moscaris was still one of the elite wrestlers in the world. No, I, I probably felt the same way. I mean, he ends up being in this big St. Louis battle royal, one of the featured stars in that uh, in the next week or so, and and he had been used a lot on the WWF's West Coast swings because he was a known star in the early '70s in LA. Uh, he wrestled a lot on the uh, WWF shows in places like LA and San Diego, and um, he was appealing to the Spanish audiences there. Uh, so they used him heavily on the West Coast, but uh, here is is the expansion is about to begin. They use him periodically, but he'll be gone fairly soon. Yes, he would be. And now one more interesting name that ha- hasn't come up. Uh, Big John Studd wrestles in a handicap match against James Burke and Rob Chaney. Sorry, I don't know who these guys are. John Studd started in the WWF uh I want to say late summer early fall 19, ni- 1982 he goes around the horn against Bob Backlund uh challenging for the WWF championship he only got one match in Madison Square Garden which surprised me uh actually he only got one match against Backlund in Boston and Backlund beat him um and then he had the feud against Andre the Giant which was well, just about the most organic feud you can imagine. I mean, the matches certainly weren't any good, but John Studd was a a big guy that you could see challenging Andre the Giant or having a chance against Andre the Giant, unlike most of the other guys on the heel r- roster. But now we're at the point where I, Steve, I was used to the old rules. I was used to by now, Big John Studd is heading off to Florida, Georgia, world class, wherever. But he's still here, and he's about to get repushed. Yeah, well, he he was going to become a major player, and and uh, Studd is is initially teamed up with Piper a little bit, and uh, and and you you can see him being both a challenger to Hogan and also a again this. Andre Stud War seems like it's going to go on for a hundred years. 
it definitely felt like it went on for a hundred years <laughs> and we'll get more more about that later i mean it was still going on in 1986 for heaven's sake yeah it, it really was it, it went on too long but uh it was just a, a natural pairing and it's, it's very interesting when you hear about the behind the scenes uh machinations about the fact that andre hated john stud and uh and that he actually pounded on John Studd, and that was one of the reasons why John Studd retired early. He, didn't, he got tired of being beat up by Andre the Giant every night. This is the first time I've ever heard that Andre did not like Big John Studd because G- Big John Studd is, you know, not obviously not everyone. There, there's an expression in wrestling like, you know, oh, everyone liked Bobby Eaton. Oh, everyone liked Kerry Von Erich. I'm not going to, but I can tell you the guys that didn't like Bobby Eaton. I can tell you the guys who didn't like Kerry Von Erich. John Studd was in that everyone likes him thing. And here we go. Another example. Well, not everyone liked him. Andre didn't. Yeah. Apparently what their big uh, disagreement was is that uh, Andre had just asked him on numerous occasions. Don't don't enter the ring going over the top rope because that's uh stud would enter the ring just like Andre did with putting his big leg over the top rope, uh, not, not bending over to enter the ring like most wrestlers did. And, uh, and I guess, uh, you know, stud just blew him off and just kept doing it anyway. But when they'd be in the ring, uh, you know, it, you know, Andre would just pound on them and just, just beat the hell out of them. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it just, by the time of their final feud, uh, in 88 and 89, um, Stud just got tired of it and just told Vince, get me off the road, and that was it. Wow, I, I had not heard that story before because the, the timing of that really seemed odd, but now it makes sense. And you know what? Andre, I, I think he's wrong. I think you have to present John Stud as a giant, as a guy who can step over the top rope, as a real threat to Andre to make that match work. Yeah, and in, in John Studd's defense, uh, I look at him as kind of a, a WWF-grown product. Uh, I mean, he came from Kowalski's school. He was trained by Kowalski. They were the executioners in the mid-'70s. Uh, he wrestled in the WWF even as early as 72 as Chuck O'Connor. Uh, so he was really a, a WWF product, in my opinion, and had been there a long, long time, just like Andre had. But, you know, Andre was considered the boss, and he could do no wrong. So That's kind of weird. And one thing I wanted to mention about Stud, I mean, I, back then, we didn't know. I, I, again, I didn't know what work rate was, but I knew John Stud could not work. That guy was, had the agility of someone wearing cement in his shoes. <laughs> That's probably why they had only the, the one match with him in Backland. But I, I will say, I mean, if you're suspending disbelief and watching this and saying this is real, I mean, John Stud, when you watch him, you thought like, yeah, who could beat this guy? I mean, other than maybe Andre or Hogan on a good day because he was just so frigging huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Backlund, Backlund won his matches around the horn with Stud kind of on a fluke. Uh, Stud had him in that that body breaker move and Backlund mm-hmm. kicked off the top rope and managed to uh, do the sunset flip and pin him. I saw that both uh, in New York. I think I saw the Philadelphia match, too, and that's what happened in Boston. We will wrap this up. The WWF comes to the New Haven Coliseum on January 15th, 1984. Kind of an interesting show. Um, two matches that I wanted to talk about. Sergeant Slaughter teams up 
with the mass superstar, an interesting team to defeat the invaders. Now the invaders had kind of an interesting history here. They were clearly going to get the WWF tag team titles from the Samoans and someone called an audible and called that off. The invaders were so small. I cannot, I, I don't think it would have been realistic to have them beating the Samoans. Yeah, definitely. That was a good uh, audible call there. And a longtime WWF fans like John and myself would know that these guys were really uh, Johnny Rivera and uh, Jose the Murderer Gonzalez. So, <laughs> I mean, one time Gor- Gorilla Monsoon slipped on TV and started calling them Rivera and Gonzalez. So, wow. <laughs> that was pretty bad. But yeah, the invaders would soon be gone um, and not get that push that, you know, obviously they were scheduled to get. New Haven gets a intercontinental title match, Don Morocco versus Jimmy Snuka in a steel cage, which I think is kind of odd because New Haven is kind of right down the street from New York City. And they already did the Morocco Snuka match three months earlier, yet here we are redoing it. I don't know. How far is New Haven from New York? Like 30, 30, 45 minutes? Pretty close. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're kind of. I don't know. I guess if the match drew, I don't have an attendance for that. Uh, it all works out. And I also wonder if Snooker jumped off the cage in new places like New Haven. He did New York. I was lucky enough to see him do it in Boston. I, I just wonder how many cities he actually did that in. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I can remember him jumping off the cage, I think, in 2000 on a Nitro. So oh, I, I think he's. I think his desire to jump off a cage is uh, it's, it's unending. He'll do it as much as they want him to do it. Oh man, I wonder how, how much pain, how many painkillers they had to give the 2000 version of Jimmy Snooker to jump off the cage. I've never seen that. I remember hearing about it and just you know kind of rolling my eyes as WCW rolls off a cliff. Now, in closing, <laughs> I wanted to share a thought from a friend of ours, Mike Fahey, as far as he was talking about like how before the national expansion, the WWF, like only a handful of kids in your school liked wrestling. And I can speak for myself. I kind of, for a long time, kept it really quiet that I was a wrestling fan because it was considered uncool. I would go to, you know, buy my wrestling magazines at the, the next town over. And I'd make sure they were in my gym bag as I took my bike, wherever, um, same thing, you know, when I moved to Nashua, you kept it quiet and right around my junior year of high school, I stopped caring. As a matter of fact, it was the end of my sophomore year because I started going to the, the matches in, in Boston. Um, but, but Mike was saying, you know, that like he didn't like the fact that now Everyone in school is a wrestling fan. Everyone is talking about, you know, Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Snooker, Roddy Piper. I mean, what was what was your feeling towards that? Well, it's it's funny what you just said. I remember um, this is for me. It was like the late seventies. I had gone on my first card in seventy seven, and uh, at the WWF show I went to in Binghamton, I had gotten like two programs. They had two programs and some eight by tens. Uh, my father used to do these excursions to Yankee Stadium where he'd get like five uh, nice buses and we would all drive down to a, a Yankees game. So here I am on this bus and I brought my wrestling magazines with me and I had my brother there and a couple of my friends from school with me. And and uh, at first they looked at the wrestling magazines and said, oh, what is this? What is this crap? Yeah. Why did you bring this for? 
but but by, by the but it, the moment they saw me reading it, they all all of them wanted to, to dive into it and get, get it. They all wanted to, to get involved in the wrestling. They may not have liked it at first, but they really wanted to get into it. And uh, you know, I I, I think um, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I I actually liked the fact that wrestling was becoming more mainstream because you know before it was just so closeted and so like. Uh, like a cult show like Uncle Floyd or SCTV. It was just like this fringe thing. But now that people were enjoying it and getting into it, I thought it was kind of cool. I've always kind of compared Memphis wrestling to the Uncle Floyd show. Like Uncle Floyd <laughs> is on Channel 38 up here. Yeah. And if you've seen it for four weeks, you've kind of seen enough. The novelty is worn off. And I mean, wrestling, you're right. It was a, a closeted was the pe- best word because I kept it in the closet for a long time entertainment. And it was, you know, and it, that was going away. Yeah. And I, I can remember being in the sixth grade when uh, there was a TV match. It was Stan Hansen against Dominic Danucci around the time that Hansen broke Bruno's neck. And they had on the wrestling locally in Binghamton right after American Bandstand on the ABC affiliate. Boys and girls in the class were all knew all knew about this match. So I mean, I know it was not before the it was way before the national expansion, but wrestling was quite popular even in the late seventies. Now we we grew up in in different worlds because I like I said I grew up in a town that had WWF wrestling once a week, and it was still like don't let these people know you're a wrestling fan. <laughs> They're gonna think you're not cool, and being cool is very important to me at that age. You're right. Steve, now we ended on the fifteenth last time. I don't know if there's just not results from the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth, or if Vince just gave the guys a break, which doesn't sound really right, especially right after Christmas. But we start off Friday, January twentieth, at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. One match, big match: Jimmy Snuka versus Sergeant Slaughter. That's really an interesting matchup, and I have to say, uh, I never ever saw a match between those two in person. Uh, and maybe there isn't even one that exists on video, but uh, that would be a, a, a very unique matchup. I, I don't think a singles match exists on video. I think I may have seen them wrestle in Boston. I'm not sure. We're going to find out. Now, we're coming towards the end of an era, of, and a very short era, which was Iron Sheik's run as WWF champion, where we had some oddball matchups. We had Bob Backlund wrestling mass superstar in the steel cage backland wins but i really think backland losing the title takes a lot of heat off of that main event at this point there's nothing wrong with quote just another match unquote like snooker slaughter but you know you're kind of really taking the cherry off the top there oh absolutely and uh, i did a little research going into this and uh Pittsburgh, uh, actually, this is the third encounter between those two, between Backlund and Mass Superstar. The first show in November, they drew 10,000 fans for that as a main event with uh, Ivan Koloff against Pat Patterson as kind of the uh, semifinal match. But listen to this. In December, the two of them had a uh, probably a Texas death match, return match. It only drew 6,000 fans. So I think that tells you that not only was the feud kind of dead in Pittsburgh, but I think uh, Backlund's days uh, were very uh, limited at that point. 
You're probably right, and I'm guessing the second match was just a rematch because they they did that in the WWF. They were just, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, we didn't have a conclusive finish in the first match. Let's just go to match number two without any stipulations. Yeah, and um, you know, and I know we we talked a little bit about Mass Superstar in our last episode, uh, how formidable an opponent he was, and uh, you know, I, I did happen to catch a couple of the matches from this time period. You know, end of '83, early '84, he just seems much bigger and much more imposing than we might remember him later as one of the machines or eventually in Demolition. But uh, I, I can see why he got a big push in this time frame. The wrestlers just got bigger and bigger as the decade went on, and Mass Superstar was absolutely a big guy by 1983 standards. I mean, so was Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, yeah, it's very true, and you pointed that out, that Slaughter was extremely large. I mean, other than uh, the the big giant guys like the Andres, the Studs, and Hogan's, uh, uh, Slaughter was right up there with them, uh, just a little little bit shorter than that group. Uh, absolutely. And we come to the main event where it's Iron Sheik defending against Chief J. Strongbow. Chief J. Strongbow at this point in his career, I guess, is just fine as a guy to put Iron Sheik over before Iron Sheik's match against Bob Backlund, which obviously never happened. We we went on a different road there. But really, that that, that is not a very good main event. Chief J. Strongbow, as we had mentioned in the past, really past his prime at this point. I'm, I'm almost positive he's in his early to mid fifties. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of sad in some ways to just think about how uh, someone who meant so much to the WWF, uh, it would be kind of like saying, uh, let's, let's, uh, you know, since you're a Boston guy, let's, let's put Carl Yastrzemski in the middle of the Red Sox lineup in the mid to late eighties. I mean, it just, it's just not fair. Um, um, he meant so much for a long, long time and, and he's really running on fumes at this point. And, uh, you know, in a couple of months, he'll be completely, he'll just be uh, a road agent for, for, Thank yeah, goodness. <laughs> it, it would be like Carl Yastrzemski on the Red Sox in 1986, you know, getting 70 at bats all season, looking terrible in all of them. Yeah, it's just, it's just not fair. But uh, but you know, and it, it's funny. I mean, I, again, we don't know what the wrestlers are thinking uh, behind the scenes. I mean, it, it seems like Strongbow has some kind of bitterness for the way he was phased out. I mean, he was on that list of people that I think McMahon uh, McMahon Senior wanted taken care of and wanted him employed. And they did that. He stayed around for another uh, 10 to 15 years as a road agent. And and apparently from every indication, he was completely miserable and treated everybody poorly. But, uh, and then, and then the, almost the minute after they, he finally ends his relationship with WWE, he goes to WCW appears on their TV show, you know, just as a walk on. But I mean, I mean, this guy, it just, it uh, seems like a one miserable, uh, you know what? I mean, that's what I've always heard about him, which is sad because, you know, I'll tell you something. This show would probably not exist had it not been for Chief J. Strongbow. I went from, yeah, I like this stuff when it's on Saturday mornings. I'm like flipping through channels and I'll watch it to appointment TV when he came back in 1976. And I mean, I had never heard that he was bitter about the way his career ended. But I mean, I I don't see in a way I don't see how he could be like who else is going to hire him at this point, except for some weird Northeast independent, maybe. 
Yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense. I mean, he should have been, um, I guess, more thankful that uh, that they wanted to have him as part of the team. And uh, and you know, I think you know, Bret Hart in his book talks a lot about uh, T.J. Strongbow. I mean, they had an interesting, uh, fairly close relationship to start off on uh, on uh, shaky ground. But uh, I think Bret was definitely uh, one of the very very few people that would speak highly of T.J. Strongbow from his road agent years. No, I, I, I've spoken to wrestlers who did not like him a, a bit. And I mean, I, if Strongbow was a, is upset about the way it ended, I totally don't get it because he had been more or less absent from the wrestling business from the, I'd say, I want to say the fall of 1979 until he got his final run with the WWF Tag Team Championship in 1982. Like he barely did any wrestling in that th- within that three year period, except he wrestled uh, an outlaw in Atlanta. Yeah, in, in the Strongbow brothers, that was atrocious. I mean, comparing them to uh, Strongbow and White Wolf, which you and I uh, both loved as a tag team, and uh, Strongbow was a lot closer to maybe not his prime, but his heyday at least. Uh, there's no comparison. The Strongbow brothers was just a complete ripoff. You know what? I liked it when it first started and it got very old very quickly. But like the first, I want to say three or four weeks of it, I was like, uh, yes, Chief Jay Strombo's back. He's got his his brother, which I knew it was Frank Hill. I recognized him from the magazines, but <laughs> I, I liked the one last run. But they, I feel like they dragged out that feud with Fuji and Saito way too long. I agree completely. All right, let's go to Championship Wrestling airing on Saturday, the 21st of January, 1984. We open up with Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas, the tag team champions against Bill Dixon and Charlie Fulton. Then something important happens. Dr. D. David Schultz versus Steve Lombardi, who is still Steve was still very new to the WWF at this point. Schultz makes his TV debut with his manager, Roddy Rowdy, Roddy Piper. Yeah, it's um, Roddy Piper being introduced as just a manager. That's kind of uh, <laughs> kind of not what you'd expect looking back on it now. And uh, interesting that Roddy didn't even get into the ring uh, when uh, Schultz was introduced. Uh, you know, Albano, Wizard, uh, Blassie, they always would get in the ring when there would be a, a beginning of a match and they'd make, come back in at the end of the match. Piper just stayed on the sidelines and watched the match from uh, – uh, down below and uh but he did a really over the top interview uh uh not your classic Roddy Piper that was just you know knock your socks off but uh very obnoxious and and uh, the beginning of that guy that you just wanted to hate yeah, and we have some audio f- clips for this program, and we'll be putting them in. Unfortunately, I don't have that particular interview. Next up, WWF champion Iron Sheik against a, a big jobber guy, John Callahan. Yeah, Iron Sheik, uh, you know, he, uh, in his earlier days, like when he had been Hussein Arab and WWF, like maybe five years earlier, uh, much more scientific, much more focusing on suplexes and things. Uh, this Sheik uh, was uh, much more uh, of a rule breaker type wrestler, uh, you know, with the loaded pointy boots and uh, the vicious moves, you know, tying the guys up in the ropes and doing that that running hurdle that he would do, or he would just plunge on top of them. And uh, he was a very uh, very brutal on the jobbers, I guess, in real life. So, 
oh, he when he put the camel clutch on some guys, you'd be like, oh, my God, that looks that he is not supposed to be quick contorted that way. Another quick thought. Fred Blassie has gone from the fashion plate, Fred Blassie, that we had known for close to 10 years to Ayatollah Fred Blassie. Yeah, you know, one thing that's interesting about that, and I had never really thought of it until just recently, um, I, I, I kind of wonder if they got that idea from the AWA because uh, the AWA about a year earlier had done pretty much the same thing with uh, Ayatollah Ken Patera or Sheikha Ken Patera and she, yep. Jerry Blackwell. And and that seemed kind of like really uh, you know out of left field uh, for those guys to do something like that. And same with Blassie, who, you know, even though he's a heel, you know, you think of Blassie as pretty much an all-American type guy, even though he always liked to manage the foreign heels. Yep. But uh, it, it definitely put a new spin on on Blassie's persona. Oh, definitely. Um you know, it was just something we were we I was not used to seeing him in, in this new uh, regalia. Next up, Tito Santana versus Bob Bradley. Tito Santana once again getting the big push. It's funny about Tito Santana is that he was another guy that uh, worked for Ole Anderson, and Ole Anderson saw nothing in this guy. And and I, I saw I think one of his infamous shoot interviews that are available on YouTube. He talks about guys like Hulk Hogan and Tito Santana. Like, what what good is he? What is he going to do for me? And uh, you know, well, what could he do for me? He could put on great matches. He could be, uh, uh, you know, a baby face that uh, uh, female fans would get excited about and want to come to pay money to to watch them wrestle. Uh, I mean, Tito Santana uh, definitely uh, proved his worth uh, through you know, over ten years in the WWF, whether he was in a tag team. Uh, Intercontinental. I mean, he did just about everything other than a world title, and he was even considered for that when uh, I think it was down between him and Bret Hart when uh, the WWF had a decision to go with the smaller guys in the early 90s. And uh, so Tito uh, was a very valuable player in the WWF. I agree that Tito was a really valuable player in the WWF in like 84, 85. And then in 87, when he became tag team champions with Rick Martel, I just never believed that story that Tito Santana was even remotely in consideration for the WWF championship in 1992. I mean, he was as much of a Tito fan as I was. He was very stale by that point. And, uh, you know, he had been around for nine years, and I, I just can't believe they even considered it. And the fact that he was uh, soon not going to be in the company anymore kind of underlines that. I mean, he went from, okay, maybe WWF champion to not being with the company anymore. So I just, I just don't, I just never bought that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to believe. I mean, I, I could see them considering him just because he was like the model employee. He was a complete professional at all times. He was a guy that made all his dates. And I, I'm sure that Bret Hart uh, was looked at favorably, too, as someone who was completely professional and loved the business. And, you know, obviously, Bret Hart wrestling is his life. And that I think uh, Tito Santana, even though he's a family guy and very responsible uh, Wrestling was a big part of his life, too, probably not to the degree with as compared to Bret Hart. But uh, I, I think you make a very good point, John. I think that Tito was stale at that point. There was nothing they could have done to refresh him. I mean, they had done the stupid El Matador gimmick, which didn't go over. And then there was really no way to refresh him and just have him be Tito Santana again after something like that. I don't think so. I mean, I remember seeing El Matador for the first time. And it was like, OK, we finally... 
Tito was the one guy in the WWF left who was getting a, a push and B who did not have a gimmick. And now it's like, okay, literally everyone has a gimmick mass superstar versus Victor Mercado. Victor Mercado is well-remembered for two things. Number one, getting hit with a water pitch or being part of the water pitcher angle in 1981 with Angelo Mosca. And number two, always looking very, very afraid before the match. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, as well, he should be against someone like Matt Superstar, who yeah. is, you know, crippling guys like like Eddie Gilbert, at least in the kayfabe way. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, Victor Mercado, I really don't remember much about him. All right, now he was around for a while, and finally, we have Bob Backlund versus Samu the Samoan. Uh, we talked a little bit about this week. Afa and Sika are with Samu and won't leave. So Backlund goes to the back and gets a guy we haven't seen in since 1981, Hulk Hogan. I mean, see, we discussed it last week. Any any new thoughts on this? Well, I wanted to get your opinion, John. Um, I think it might have been Cartwright Jones, one of our Facebook groups, who brought up the question about. How important do you think Rocky Three was as far as Hulk Hogan getting over so big with the audience? What's your take on that? Oh, I think it was. I think that was incredibly big, and I, I'll explain why. Hulk Hogan, you know, he was fine as a heel. He was a good talker, not a great talker, but, you know, he was good. But when someone in Hollywood, whoever it was, wrote that Thunderlips part for him and <laughs> Hogan actually morphed into that Thunderlips guy, like that changed everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny to look back on it now. Uh, I was a senior in high school in the, the graduating class of 81 to 82. So I graduated high school in June of 82. And I can remember back um, again, this is right around the time that Rocky Three came out. There was a real preppy young girl that I graduated with, you know, real preppy girl. She'd probably be the kind of girl now that would wear uh, uh, Vineyard Vines uh, clothing and be really Ooh. preppy. And I just had to say that. But anyhow, this girl, uh, uh, she had a poster in her locker of Hulk Hogan. And that was like unheard of, like a, a poster of a wrestler in your in your high school locker. And it was it wasn't like an AWA issued poster. I think it must have been some magazine or whatever. But um, I mean, that showed you the reach of that movie and uh, turning him from just a wrestling star into a hot commodity Hollywood type star. Yeah, I, I remember seeing uh, Rocky Three the weekend it came out solely because Hulk Hogan was in it. I was just kind of that guy, even though Rocky Two really stunk. Uh, Rocky Three was was it was good. I mean, now Rocky is kind of a cartoon series, and Hogan is part of that. But I mean, whoever wrote up that part, and we'll never know who the person is. They drew they drew up the blueprint for WrestleMania. Well, you know, and another thing that's interesting about this is, um, and I think Terry Funk has said this, when they were getting close to casting that role for the movie of Thunderlips, they wanted a wrestler who was so much bigger uh, visually and so much more imposing and scary than uh, Sylvester Stallone, who isn't really that tall. No. Uh, one of the guys they really supposedly considered was Gorilla Monsoon, who, you know, even though he was very, very big and very, very large, uh, really had a completely different look than Hogan, obviously. Uh, but that would have been funny if he had gotten that role in that movie. But uh, another thing to mention about this confrontation, this setup between uh, where Hogan returns after his four or five year absence, 
the fact that uh, uh, Captain Lou got to sell for him, uh, which again, you know, uh, other than at the arenas, it was very rare to see Captain Lou sell on TV, but he was taking bumps for Hogan in the match. And, and the fans were chanting Hogan's name, which, I mean, I, I think that does prove that the impact of the movie had to play a major role because, I mean, he hadn't been on WWF TV in four or five years. Uh, how else would they be chanting his name? Uh, no, you're right, and uh, I, I'm guessing they just a lot of them remembered him from you know the 80, the 79 to 81 run, and a lot of people just knew who he was from the movie. But you're right. Now they make a uh, a big thing happens here. It's on WOR TV, uh, Channel Nine in New York, which I no longer had on my cable system by this point. <laughs> but they announce that Bob Backlund the Scheduled Bob Backlund rematch versus the Iron Sheik on Monday, January 23rd was not going to take place because Bob Backlund's his his shoulder was just too injured to compete in that match, even though he fought the night before. But that's why that's why the territories will never work again, because there's no such thing as kayfabe. And in his place will be Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that was um that was something that had to be. I mean, um, it was the perfect time to do a transition, and and it was really awkward watching the whole Backlund Hogan transition on TV. As far as like when they appeared together, you know, uh, Backlund tried to be forceful, like uh, saying like you know, and he was trying to endorse Hogan for the fans. But once Hogan got talking, it was like the people forgot Backlund was even there. It was just like. It was just time for something new and different. I know as a fan that went to the house shows, of, just like you did, John, I was just ready for something different. It was just, it was just getting old seeing Backlund in his same old routine. Not, his wrestling was good, but you just got tired of you know, his interviews and the whole, the whole Backlund gimmick or lack thereof. At this point, I had been ready for something new for like two or three years. I mean, Bob was good at his job. At the end of the day, you look back, you know a little bit more about the business than you did almost 40 years ago. I mean, Backlund was a he was not only a, a really good draw as WWF champion, but he was a really reliable professional. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, nothing, nothing negative about him. But I, I will point this out that some of those last uh, WWF TV appearances he made where you can tell he's got some sour grapes and he's like, uh, you know, some of it is kayfabe, but some of it is like, you know, the real person coming through. Uh, you can tell there's a bitterness, a, a kind of a disappointment there, uh, a resentment perhaps that Hogan was the man now and he wasn't anymore. And uh, keep this in mind, uh, about a year later when uh, Pro Wrestling USA debuts on WPX in New York and I'm sure you probably got to see it in Boston too, John. Yep. Um, th that same persona of Backlund is this disappointed, crushed, devastated, angry, bitter. <laughs> that same person comes across, and and they're pushing him on pro wrestling in USA. Like, hey, this is a guy you really want to come out and see. And <laughs> that was that was such a such a downer and such a, I, you know, I, it just shows you that the people that ran pro wrestling USA, whether it was you know Vern or Eddie Einhorn or the Crockett's, they had no clue what the fans really wanted, at least in the Northeast. They, I mean, you know, I, I, I've said this about Bob before, and I almost hate saying it, but it was like the business had really passed him by in 1984, and, and Pro Wrestling USA thought they were going to hire Bob Backlund and make him their, their own Hulk Hogan in the Northeast. And like I said, the fans... By this point, I mean, in 82 and 83, the fans started turning on, on Backland. By the end of 84, man, it was brutal. 
Yeah, and and they 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 even wanted to bring Billy Billy Graham back, and they had Billy Graham on some of those pro wrestling USA shows, and I mean they just didn't know what was going to sell with the audience. I mean they had Carlo, uh, Carlos Colon at the shows at the Meadowlands, because I guess they figured, well, in the New York market, you want to have some Puerto Rican, uh, uh, someone that the Spanish fans can be attracted to, but you know nothing nothing that they try to do worked in the Northeast. No, it it was it was doomed from the start. And the final match, we have Mr. Fuji against Denny Hill. Mr. Fuji still getting that a little bit of a mid card push. Yeah, it, th- I guess that was just the kind of a match just to end the show, and then they could talk about other things as they prepare for next week's uh, episode. Yeah. All right. All Star Wrestling uh, appearing on the same Saturday. We have Paul Orndorff against Special Delivery Jones, which in theory is at least a competitive match. Yeah, I can remember uh, Orndorff's debut on TV, and he had that match with SD Jones. I remember another TV match he had with Tony Guerrilla, which I'm sure we'll mention in the weeks to come. And, uh, you know, they, they definitely started Orndorff off slowly. I mean, he wasn't doing any huge angles or anything right off the bat. But uh, what he brought to the table was, was so obvious. I mean, a great body, great wrestler, super believable, you know, scary as a heel, and, uh, and de- would definitely go on to be one of the most prolific uh, WWF stars of the next three or four years. Oh, I, I remember watching him in Georgia, uh, summer of 1982, and he was challenging Ric Flair, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? This guy could easily be NWA champion. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas against Butcher Rashawn and Charlie Fulton. Uh, Johnson and Atlas are still the tag team champions, and a very unique team, as I mentioned, that you know, most WWF tag teams had one star, like a Dino Bravo or an Ivan Putski, and then they had a lesser guy, like a Dominic DiNucci or a Tito Santana. And yes, in 1979, Tito was a, l- a little bit of a lesser guy. Now we've got two legitimate stars. Yeah, um, with those two, I, I think you can really see Rocky Johnson was much more polished as a as a performer, much more complete uh, performer than Tony Atlas is. Um, during one of these episodes, they both did an interview together, and uh, Rocky was very polished and hit the points he needed to hit. Uh, Tony was just rambling and in- incoherent and just all over the place. Um, I mean, I liked him a lot more in his previous run in 1980. It just seemed like uh, his career was just spiraling out of control, and uh, he never really got back to that super strong uh, area of his career where he had been that sweet spot of his career in the early nine, early 80s, uh, sad, to, sad to say it. You know what? What you're saying is true, though. Tony Atlas had peaked at this point. Tony was in Georgia in 1983, and he was uh, Rick, he was going to challenge Ric Flair at the Omni for the NWA title. And I came away thinking, like, you know, Tony Atlas would be a good champion. I, I didn't realize at the time that Tony really couldn't work. But as a kid sitting in front of the TV, I bought him. And but, yeah, that he was never the same. Like, that was probably his peak. And even though he's. Uh, even though he's one of the WWF tag team champions, the arrow is headed downward. Oh yeah. And, and, and you mentioned their competition in this particular match, uh, butcher is Sean. Uh, I became a fan in 76 and I think he returned for a brief run around 78 and he was pretty much in that role. Even in 78, he was like lower card, uh, not even middle card, lower card, they're working prelim matches. And he was, you know, over the hill and, and heavy. And now by this 1984 run, he's back in again, which kind of was startling. They brought him back 
but he's you know even more heavy. And of course, the only thing that really came out of this final run with WWF was his uh, wedding on the TNT show, which uh, really uh, played a major role as far as Dick Ebersol getting involved in wrestling. And uh, apparently that really uh, uh, got a lot of eyes on the product as far as uh, getting it on NBC eventually. If I recall correctly, Vashon, he was a, a pretty big star in the in the 60s and early 70s. But you're right. By the time he returned to the WWF and I want to say like fall or end of 1977, they brought him back with Captain Lou Albano as his manager. So I'm thinking, OK, well, are we going to see Butcher Vashon against, you know, wrestling for the title or something like that. And, uh, you know, pretty soon Albana was gone and he was doing jobs on TV. Uh, he left and now he's back. Um, I think he came back middle of 83. And at this point, he's just another guy doing jobs on TV. Yeah. Yeah. He just apparently needed the work and had a good relationship with McMahon's. Uh, and that was it. Yeah, Dr. D. David Schultz uh, making his all-star wrestling debut against John Callahan, uh, mass superstar against Ken Jugan. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have this victory corner with Jimmy Snuka because two guys <laughs> who can't talk. Um, <laughs> that's right, we're going to have our Robert DeBoard moments pretty soon. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter against Steve Lombardi, Tito Santana over Frank Williams, and Jose Luis Rivera. The victory train continues against Israel Matia. <laughs> yeah, he um, he was getting a, a little bit of a minor push, and, and with the WWF expansion here going on, um, you're going to see more and more big stars arrive from different territories, in the, the days of being able to push uh, Jose Luis Rivera, even as small as a push as this was, they just won't have any more time for people that are at his level. No. Uh, well, we, we'll see what happens. But it was to me, it was a very interesting time because all of a sudden this guy who I had never seen win a match changed his first name and magically got way better as a wrestler. Uh, <laughs> You know, one of the biggest complaints I get about I get about stick to wrestling is that it's too short. I mean, that's a great that's a great thing to complain about. People are like, "Wow, I'm really getting into it," and 60 minutes later, it's over. And I hope you enjoyed this extra large edition of Stick to Wrestling that we started. 2024 with. Uh, I want to thank Steve Generelli for joining us and doing that podcast with us. It was originally supposed to be separate from Stick to Wrestling, but we just decided to go in a different direction. I want to thank Brian Lass for giving me this forum every week. Thank you, Brian. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. Lou, you are greatly appreciated. And of course, I want to thank all of you for listening every single week. We'll be back next week with part two of this deep dive into 1984. Everyone have a great week. Thank you for listening. Take care. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 